Thanks, Seth. Matthew chapter 9, 35 through 36. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Luke 4, 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Acts 8, 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Seth, for reading that for us. Um, I want to start this morning as I reshuffle my notes from last service. I want to start this morning with uh, a story, a story that um, I kind of find funny, uh, but also happens to illustrate some of what we're talking about this morning. And this is a story that begins with this uh, man who lived in ancient Greece, a man whose name is Phytopedes. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's a hard name, um, but we'll call him that. We'll go with Phytopedes. And Phytopedes is uh, a soldier who fought, uh, who's from Athens and, and fought in the great Greco-Persian wars. In fact, he fought in one of what is perhaps one of the most consequential battles of Western civilization history, a, a battle where the Persian Empire had invaded into the... Um, peninsula of, of Greece and, and threatened the alliance of, of the city-states there. And this was a battle that was, was very, very close to Athens, the, one of the most prominent and most important cities in this alliance. And so this was a big deal. It was a big deal. You can imagine in Athens that day that, that as after this, the, the army had departed to go and, and to meet the Persians, to keep them away from their city. You, you imagine the anxiety of the city, right? The people who remained in the city not knowing if by that time tomorrow they would live in Persia or if they would live in Athens. And so Phytopetus had this crucial job. As soon as the, the victory was won for the Grecians, he, he, he runs runs from uh, the, the battles right outside a, a town called Marathon. And so he ran about 26 miles from there to Athens, and he bursts into the assembly of the Athens, and he claims, we have won. And then he collapsed dead. That's not the funny part. The funny part comes uh, a couple thousand years later when somebody was, was trying to get the Olympics going again, right? And they, they're like, we need a story with some gravitas, right? We need an, an image, an event that will, will show these ancient Grecian roots. And I imagine one of the, somebody on the committee going, you know what would be great? What about if we had, um, what about if we had every country uh, submit one man as tribute, right? And he will he'll run the same path that Phytopedes did, 26.2 miles from Marathon to Athens. And the other one looks at him and goes, oh, you mean the guy who died because he ran an ungodly uh, number of miles? They're like, yeah, that. Let's do that and see if anyone's still alive at the end of the race. And now you know why uh, all you middle-aged people feel compelled to uh, go run a marathon every fall. But I tell that story because 
our task here this morning is to understand this kind of peculiar phrase, a phrase that you heard Seth read a, a couple of different times, the gospel of the kingdom or, or uh, the good news of the kingdom. And we're trying to figure out what this word gospel means. What does this gospel uh, help us understand who, what this kingdom of God is? And if you've been visiting Redeemer, you know that this is kind of our task for this fall is we are asking the question, what is the kingdom of God? What does it entail? What does it look like? And so we want to know what does this word mean? What is the gospel of the kingdom? And one of the answers, the most simple answer is that word, gospel, means good news. It's the picture, it's used, its use in, in ancient Greece is, is almost, in ancient Greek, I should say, is used primarily of exactly this picture, of somebody who um, has come to share earth-shattering news of the kingdom in which they live, uh, the victory on the battlefield, or to come and to proclaim that, that a new heir has taken the throne, or to come and proclaim that the kingdom has been saved from an invader. It was an earth-shattering life as you know it is about to change kind of news. And that's exactly what Jesus in these passages says he came to bring, to bring good news, this announcement, this herald of a massive transition. And so the question I want us to ask is, what does that mean for how we understand the kingdom of God? What do we learn about the kingdom of God in the sense that it must be declared by a herald? I'm going to offer us two thoughts. The first is that it means that this kingdom is a threatening kingdom. And second, that this kingdom is a kingdom of freedom, a freeing kingdom. First, threatening this might be a, a weird word choice for you. you go, like, if I think about the word gospel, right, which if you've been around Christians at all, or whether you are a Christian or not, you've probably heard this word thrown around, but it never, never really sounds all that threatening, does it? Like, if you, if you poke a Christian and you say, what, is, what do you mean by that word? What is the gospel? They're going to say, you know, something that sounds kind of nice, right? Like, it's the, the free offer or the free gift of salvation, or they'll say, Jesus loves you so much that he died on the cross to give you eternal life. Those are not phrases that sound too uh, threatening, are they? And yet, and yet, if you know the story of Jesus, you know that him coming and proclaiming this kingdom resulted in everybody around him wanting to kill him. Why? Because they felt threatened. And we learn that right from the get-go by this word gospel. Because you see gospel, you hear the word gospel and you think, oh, Jesus, Christians, gospel, gospel, gospel. But, but if you lived in first century Rome, you had a, a different association with gospel. And it's not the gospel of Jesus, it's the gospel of Caesar. All right, and if you give me a second to be a little dorky and a little bit of a history dork here, Right, there's this really uh, fascinating stone that has this inscription on, inscription on it that, that dates from like 9 BC. And on this stone, it um, is announcing that they're, they're a, the, the adjustment of their, their, the Roman calendar, right, to coincide with the birth of Caesar Augustus. And so this announcement's trying to describe why they are, are making this transition and listen to the kinds of words right, that this ancient writer used to describe Caesar Augustus. He says first, 
Caesar was good news for the word, for the world. It was the gospel for the world. Caesar Augustus was the good news, the declaration, the, the proclamation of good news for the world. Why? Well, it says because he was the Savior, both for us and, and for our descendants. It says that Caesar Augustus was such a, a great king and a, such a great ruler that he was a gift of providence given to us so that uh, out of providence's deep interest in our lives to, to make the most perfect order by his virtue that he might benefit all of humankind. Do you hear how this language, language describing Caesar Augustus, the New Testament writers are echoing these same kinds of claims, that a Savior has come to the world to bring peace to bring prosperity, to arrange and, and fix all things. The gospel of Caesar proclaimed good news of a kingdom, but it was of a different kind. And so right from the get-go, as we read these verses, and Jesus comes and he says, look, my job above everything else is to declare the gospel of the kingdom. Everyone, whether they liked Rome or not, knew what that meant. He was coming to replace Caesar. It's kind of like for you sports fans. Remember a few years ago, um, LeBron James comes out, or I think this isn't like an HBO special or something. Do you all remember this? LeBron James, and if you don't know who LeBron James is, this illustration won't make sense to you, so just tune out for a minute. Um, LeBron James is in this uh, interview, and he answers this question kind of nonchalantly. He says, you know, that victory right there, that made me the greatest player of all time. And then he moves on and, and continues. And if you just look at it on the face of, uh, of it, you, you say he's just stating what he believes to be fact. But if you are a sports fan who has watched ESPN in the last 15 years, right, you know that the nonstop question that every time... Um, it's baseball season. They ask this question, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Who's the GOAT? So when LeBron James says, I'm the greatest player of all time, he's not just saying, look, I'm, I'm really good. He's saying, I'm better than Michael Jordan. I've, repli I've replaced him on the hierarchy of sports. By using that language, LeBron James is making a declaration about himself. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's saying, no, 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 it's not Caesar who will set all things in the most perfect order. It is not Caesar who has a deep interest in your life or, or who will be the Savior. That, that's me. But whether you like Rome or not, you have to, to recognize that Jesus didn't just threaten Caesar. He threatened everyone who had built a life on the security of the reign and rule of the Roman Empire. He didn't just threaten Caesar's reign and rule. He threatened everyone who had, had built a house or who had, who had purchased a home, uh, banking on the fact that that location, their geographic location, was a safe and prosperous place. He comes and, and, and he threatens everyone who had built a business and an a economic life in a town ruled by the Roman Empire. He, came, he comes and he threatens families uh, who have children, children who would not be safe in the midst of a civil rebellion, right? He comes and he attacks uh, the very notion of their rights as Roman citizens because if Jesus takes over for Caesar, where does that leave you? 
you recognize that Jesus is not just threatening Caesar, he's threatening everyone. Because life, as you know, it is about to change. It's almost like what you would respond, right? If Jesus comes and he says, I've come to replace your democracy, right? I've, I've come to, to build something that's better than freedom of speech. I've come and you're, now your, your, your economic plan of, of free markets or, or your economic policy is it's basically going to become obsolete because I am replacing the very climate, the very environment in which you live. And if you start thinking through your life, that starts getting feeling a little threatening, doesn't it? Well, I, well, <laughs> I feed my kids off of that income that I earn here, right? My, I put my kids to bed at night knowing that they're safe because they live here, right? I build a social life. I live in this city. I, uh, just everything about life would change if Jesus were to come and to say that. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts to sound a little more threatening to us, doesn't he? That his reign and his rule, his kingdom challenges our very notion of what life looks like. He starts to sound a lot more like a Jesus who, who looked a rich man dead in the eyes and he said, go sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor. He starts to sound more like the, the Jesus who, who says to his disciples, come follow me. And by the way, leave your, your ships, your business, your assets on the seashore and come with me. Starts to sound like the Jesus who says um, that if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, you must be prepared to leave your house, your brothers, your sisters, your mother, your father, your children, your lands for me. Jesus says a lot of really threatening things. In fact, he even goes this far. He says, uh, if you, whoever wants to save his life must lose it. Jesus is threatening life as you know it. <clears throat> but, but we have a hard time relating with that idea. We have a hard time relating with that idea because for many of us in this room, we've been Christians for a, a, a sizable amount of time. And threatening still is not the kind of word we would use. We might say something like, you know, um, I, I feel a little restrained or constricted or I'm frustrated, right? But, but can you imagine if Jesus looked you dead in the eye and he said, you must sell everything that you have and give to the poor because you... It's keeping you out of the kingdom of God. So why don't we feel threatened by Jesus? Why we who have, who some of us have been Christians for decades and decades, some of you have been Christians longer than I've been alive, and yet we don't feel that threat. I want to propose that I think it's because we have found a way to separate our lives. And we say to Jesus, you know, Jesus, your kingdom is here for all of these intangible aspects of my life, right? My, my, my spiritual life, right? God, God, Jesus, you're here uh, for my um, moral instruction. Jesus, you're here for my um, emotional health and well-being. But when push comes to shove, the nitty-gritty, right, the, the functional parts of my life, like how I earn a living, how I decide where to live, right, who I hang out with, who I live with, 
Those are questions that, that belong in, in the private decision realm. Those are decisions that I make for myself. But the problem is, is nobody in the first century would have heard it that way. They knew that, that when Jesus comes and he says, I am bringing a new kingdom, I am, I am replacing Caesar, he is shaking the very foundations of their everyday life. Let me, let's do, do a little mind experiment here. So uh, let's, let's put Jesus's proclamation on the side and let's pretend a different kind of announcement, a different kind of good news, right? So imagine that you, uh, this week, receive news that, that some long-lost great-uncle has left you a vast fortune, right? He's left you his entire estate. And, and whatever the amount of money is that's in your brain that goes, I never have to rely on my job ever again. I have enough money to, to see me through to the end. Picture that, whatever that number is for you, picture that amount of money that has just been given and, and deposited into your bank account. What would that good news change about you? How would that transform your relationship with other people? Right? Well, we could, we could look at a survey of like lottery winners and, and people who, it, it fundamentally changes everyone around you, right? The way that they relate to you if they know that you have that kind of wealth. How would it change the way that you relate with other people? Well, all of a sudden, you're, 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 that, that split between your wealth and their lack of wealth makes you suspicious of everyone else around you. The fact that you received good news fundamentally changes everything about your life. It changes the way you relate to your house. It changes your relationship with, with how you shop for a car. It changes everything. I bet it even changed the way you think about yourself. But let's pretend that even if you tried, you tried as hard as you could, and you said, this money is not going to change me. I'm going to stay in my same house. I'm going to drive my same car. I'm going to be friends with the same people. In fact, I'm going to keep it a total secret that I have this wealth. You couldn't do it, could you? Because if you no longer need that money, then when you go to work, right, and, and your boss sets an unreasonable deadline... Right? You, 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 you look around your house and you see all of these little inconveniences, the things that aren't right, the things that, that you wish to be broken. Your relationship changes. Your relationship with work changes. You go, at some point you go, I don't need to deal with this. I have the money I need. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. Right? Or your house, you, you start looking around and you go, I'm, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay. But pretty soon all those little things, you start you start spending the money, right? You, you start doing the renovations or you start shopping for a new house because you can't live with those inconveniences knowing that there's an alternative reality where you have wealth that, that is not being used. The good news of money changes everything. How much more would the good news of Jesus's kingdom ought to change? And this starts to really hit home, doesn't it? And this is where the threat really starts to come. It's because Jesus comes, and when he proclaims, I have brought a, a good news of a new kingdom, it starts to change the way that you choose your career, the way that you choose a house, the way that you choose schools for your kids. Why? Because most of us, 
myself included, have become so uh, separated in our world and our thinking that we make those kinds of choices exactly the same way that everyone else around us does. We say, what, <laughs> what career pays the most? What, what career gives me the most safety? We say, which house, well, which house meets my wish list the best, right? Which house meets my whims and my desires the most? We say, school, what, well, what school is the best fit for my child? There are questions that are good questions. They may be informative questions, helpful questions, but if Jesus is the king and, king and he has replaced everything about our lives, they're, they're insufficient questions, the questions that haven't been formed and shaped enough. Because if those are the only questions that you're asking, then that means that you've pulled that decision out of the kingdom of God. You say, God, okay, you got the rest over there, but these decisions, these are private decisions. These are my decisions. These are the decisions I have control over. Let me put it this way. Would your realtor know that you're a Christian? Not because you told them that you're a Christian, not because you told them you go to church, not because you uh, share Jesus, uh, the story of Jesus with them, but would your realtor know that you're a Christian simply because of the questions that you're asking, the priorities that you, you are uh, vocalizing as you look at homes with them, right? Where you're looking at your neighbors and you're not just asking the question, uh, how do these neighbors uh, impact me or serve me? But you start saying, hey, I want to look for homes in this area because I think that will position me to, to love my neighbors in a way that I, I don't currently. Schools. Those of you who have kids, right? If you take your kids on a school tour and you start looking around at, at, at the, the, the school, you're going to be asking all the right questions. You're going to be asking about test scores. You're going to be asking about... Um, art programs and athletic teams, well, opportunities for your children. Those are good and those are helpful questions, but they're, they're fundamentally not enough. Because when Jesus' kingdom comes with a whole value system, a system that says you are called to love your neighbor as yourself, to the extreme extent, to the same calling, you are called to love your neighbor and so when you go and you visit a school and they start talking about their test scores that are maybe not so good, when they start talking about their free and reduced population and you start getting nervous, you're going, how is this going to affect my child? You also have to ask a second question, how can I help? Right? Because if you have been formed by the kingdom of God, you know that God loves the poor. He loves the least of these. And so whatever choice you make, that is a question you have to answer. Hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying that one question is, inadequate, is bad. I'm saying that it's not enough. In the kingdom of Jesus, we have to ask both questions. Because we're called to our neighbors. And this is where the threat really starts coming in, is, is when Jesus comes and he says... Um, you know, all of these uh, economic and social realities are opportunities for you to reflect the values of the kingdom. These social and economic opportunities are, 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 are in there for you to further the mission of God's kingdom. You start realizing, oh, 
God's going to start pulling some of these decisions away from me. I'm not going to have the same, uh, the same conscious ability to choose the same choices that I would make before. I have to, I, I'm being drawn to and pulled towards things that I, at one level, don't really want. But God is inviting me to. It's a threat. It's a challenge. One of the things, passages that that kind of haunts my personal life is, is a story in Matthew 6, and Jesus has just told uh, his followers, and he says, um, you know, don't lay up, don't build treasures on earth, but let store treasures in heaven. And then he says this. He says, um, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For, though, for the Gentiles seek after these things. You notice what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, the, the way that you relate with the world, the way that you find food and clothing and security in this life, why are you pursuing those questions in exactly the same way that the, that the people who don't know about the kingdom of God are? How is the announcement of the kingdom of God not registering in your brain? Because don't you know that your father uh, clothes the lilies of the fields and that he cares for the birds of the air. How much more so does he care about you? He's saying there's a reality in this world that ought to utterly transform your view of the world. And so he says, but seek first the kingdom of heaven and all and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. When Jesus proclaims his gospel, he's giving a notice. And notice that uh, the entire social order that we have set up for ourselves of peace and prosperity and future for our children is being threatened by Jesus replacing it. And it's a kind of question that ought to, to bother us a little bit if we don't feel like our lives are being threatened by him. But I said there was two things. It's not just that Jesus has uh, uh, brought about a kingdom that is threatening. He's brought a kingdom that is freeing. You see, you notice um, that the, if you look at these passages that we have in front of us, that the, the, the story, the proclamation of, of Jesus' kingdom is not threatening to everyone. In fact, in the first one in Matthew 9, it tells us, Jesus says pretty explicitly, I've come to have compassion on the harassed and the helpless. I've come to heal um, all the sick and, and to free them from all their afflictions. In Luke 4, he says, this is good news. I need to share it with as many cities and towns as possible. In Acts 8, we see a group of people who are, are, are told the gospel of the kingdom, and they don't respond in threat and running the other way. Instead, the opposite. It says that they believed Philip as he preached the good news, and they were baptized. They, they ran to the promises of God. And so the question for us this morning is, is well, why are they not crippled by feeling threatened? What is it about these people that is responding differently to the, the, the proclamation of Jesus' kingdom? I want to think it's right there in Acts 8. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news, they received. They believed. 
they believed. Think about um, our friend, um, what was his name again? I forget. Uh, you know, think about if the Athenians uh, didn't believe Phytopetus, right? He runs into their assembly and he says, uh, we have won, right? And, they, and then he dies, right? So they can't ask him any follow-up questions. They go, wait, wait. Maybe we misheard him. Maybe he said, I'm the only one, as in the Persians are coming and I'm the sole survivor. Or you can imagine that he comes and he says, we have won, and they go, mm, I've always been a little suspicious of this Phytopetes guy, right? What about if he's a double agent and he was sent here by the Persians to, to, to sucker us in to lowering our defenses? Well, if they don't believe Phytopetes' announcement, would they walk out of that assembly feeling free? Or would they walk out of that assembly feeling threatened and afraid and scared? If they don't believe the message that he came to bring, then they are scared witless, right? Some are running to, to quickly learn the Persian language, right, so they can suck up to their new rulers. And, and others are running and trying to find swords and shields to make a last stand to protect their city. But if they don't believe the message, they don't experience the freedom. Let's put it a different way. Another thought experiment. We've got a lot of thought experiments today. Uh, let's pretend that you hear a proclamation uh, issued by a, a weather person, right, that says uh, Memphis is about to experience an ice storm, right? And everything in your experience as a Memphian tells you this is very bad news, right? There's going to be broken uh, water mains. We're going to be without power for 32 years. Um, life as we know it is about to end. And so what do you do? You go to Kroger and you buy 75 gallons of milk, right? You buy as much milk and as much bread as you can possibly find. The people who are laughing right now are the non-native Memphians, right? Because you, you don't even need a weather app, do you? You just go to Kroger and you can see, oh, there's severe weather coming. We, we stock up because we know the implications. We know the fear of that news, but let's continue on our hypothetical example. You've, you've heard the news that you're on your own. You've got you to take care of yourself. You better find your own generator. You better find your own food. You've got to sustain your own life for the next three weeks while public services are down. But then the news changes. A different weather person comes up and they say, actually, JK, LOL, the, the ice storm's not coming. The, the, the cold front got blown somewhere else, right? You are free to live your life as normal. What about if you look out your window and you go, I don't know, it still feels really cold outside. Those clouds still look like they're going to turn, uh, dump some frozen rain on us. What is your response going to be? You're going to hold on to that milk, Right? Because the threat is still there. You're going to hold on to all your, your loaves of bread because you don't know if you will have enough. But what changes if you believe the second meteorologist? What happens if you believe when they say the storm is gone, there is no threat on your life, you don't have to sustain yourself? Well, then you'd be trying to get that, fr that milk out of your fridge as fast as possible, right? The thing that was your very life, that, 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 that secured your future, becomes dead weight. It becomes something that you've got to clear out of the way. You want to give it away to as many neighbors as fast as possible because nobody needs 75 gallons of milk. In the same way, when Jesus 
comes to us. And he says, my kingdom is going to fundamentally change your relationship with, with your career, with how you make choices and operate your business. We start feeling like he's trying to, to take our milk, right? That he's trying to force his way in and, and steal everything from us, that, that we are being under attack, that he's a threat. But what if the, the story that Jesus comes to bring is to say, there is nothing to fear. Don't you know that I am here to care for you, to provide for you? Well, then what you would experience is not a threat from Jesus, but the gift of freedom. That you are free to live in God's world. What changed? Well, if you don't believe in the story, then the climate outside is a fear, and you must continue on with your own choices and your own self-resourcefulness. But if Jesus is right that the climate has fundamentally changed, well, then you can live your life. You can be yourself. You see, we feel Jesus is threatening us because we have lived in a climate that tells us your prosperity is based on you earning it. Your well-being, your security in this life is based on how hard you work or how privileged you are at birth, but either of those is terribly scary. We live in a climate that tells us if you want your kids to flourish, then you must keep them safe from everything that would threaten their health, their education, their well-being. And so you have to protect them. We live in a climate that says if you want to be yourself and you want to feel the freedom to, 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 to embrace all these gifts and, and, and amazing experiences of your life, well, then you have this, what turns out to be a crushing existential burden to, to dig down deep and find in yourself a reason to keep living, to, to dig down deep and to, to protect yourself from the rest of the world. And you quickly realize that's not freedom, but slavery. That the real threat to my life is, is not Jesus' kingdom, it's me and the kingdom I'm coming to bring. Because if you want prosperity, Jesus says, don't you know that the saints will inherit the earth? If you want your kids to flourish, don't you know that the promises of God's are eternal and they're already given to you? If you want to be your full self, don't you know that it is in my kingdom you can be fully human. And not just human in a generic sense, but human in the particular and nuanced ways that God made you to, to be. Jesus says, I'm coming to bring a kingdom that fundamentally rewrites the way you think about your life. And you are terrified of the threat because you you believe deep down that the climate hasn't changed, that it's up to you to care for your kids, that it's up to you to provide health and prosperity for, <clears throat> for yourself. Let me close with this. Um, uh, this summer, we got a chance to go to Dollywood, and this is something we've done twice now with the same group of friends. There's some friends that live out in Knoxville, and they are, they are Dollywooders, right? Like, they got the season tickets, they go... Um, multiple times a week, sometimes during the summer, they go to Dollywood and they go hard, right? Um, and so they invited us to come with them, and, and it was really great and it was exciting. But, but there's this problem, is that when my family travels, I am the planner, 
right? Like, I, I make the choices. Like, I plan the hotels. I say how far we're going to drive in a day. I, I, I make our itineraries and our list of activities. I assess opportunities for fun, and I'm like, mm, I don't think my family will really appreciate that that much. And so when I go to amusement park with my, with my wife and my kids, I have this planned out, right? Like, I... I've never done this, but I could probably write out some sort of mathematical equation for how I'm going to attack this uh, theme park, right? To get the most fun with the least drag possible, right? So, we, so I would have a, a part of like, where we're going to go to this ride first, and we're going to go over here, and then if this line's short, then we'll hop on this, and if it's not short, then we'll, we'll hop over here, right? I have a plan. But the problem is, is that our friend also had a plan, and so the first summer we go to Dollywood with them, um, she goes, uh, okay, we're going to this ride first. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is my family's only day at Dollywood, right? Like, I should be the one making choices. And so I say, hey, well, what about if we went to this ride instead? And if you knew this friend, she probably literally said this to me. She's like, no, dummy. That's not where we're going first, right? She says, this is the best way to do this. And it was a miserable day in, in its own sort of way, right? Because all day, every time there was a decision, who's going where, what we're going to do next, I'm going, no, 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 that's not the best decision. I want that decision. And every single time she's going, no, come with me, come with me. I know this park. Believe me, I know this park better than you could ever imagine. And all day long, I felt like she was stealing, threatening my choices, so come around this summer. This summer we go back with this same family, but this time I've got the heads up, right? This time I, I know what's about to come, and so I had to make a conscious choice. I am not going to make a plan. I'm going to follow her exactly where she tells me to go. And can I just tell you which day was better? Which day felt more free? It was not the day I made all my own choices for myself. It wasn't the day that was organized according to my priorities. It was the day when I took my hands off and I said, I will follow you wherever you go because you know how to give my family the day that we need at Dollywood. It was actually kind of a terrible day. I had a terrible headache because I'm middle-aged. But but because I trusted her, I had the freedom with my headache to go sit down and be one of those creepy people sleeping on a bench in Dollywood, right? Like, I had the opportunity to feel what I needed to feel, to be who I was to be. Why? Because I allowed her to threaten my world. Because I allowed her to, to, to break in, and ultimately, I decided to trust her, to believe that she really did know the good news of going to Dollywood. And the same is true of Jesus. When Jesus comes and he proclaims the kingdom into your life, you will feel threatened. And over and over again in your Christian life, there will be times when you feel threatened by Jesus' reign and rule in your life. But remember this, he comes to set you free. He comes to bring good news to the poor, and he comes to bring salvation to the guilty. So the question really is, is what are we going to do with the gospel of the kingdom? Will we believe? Will we trust? Will we follow? Consider that an invitation this morning.
Father, we pray, Lord, that you, God, that maybe, Lord, even for the first time, we start to realize that there are things that we have held to ourselves, the areas of our life that we are, feel too threatened and too triggered to even consider uh, what your kingdom would look like. Father, I pray that this morning you would illuminate your goodness, that you would illuminate your kindness, that you would illuminate the way that you intend to bring about the salvation of your world. Help us to believe, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.